0: Welcome to the Agent of Influence podcast with Nabil Hanan. I'm your host, Nabil Hanan, Managing Director at NetSpy. This is a podcast sponsored by NetSpy as a place to share best practices and trends in the world of cybersecurity and vulnerability management. Portions of this interview will appear in print on the NetSpy executive blog. To find out more, go to www.netspy.com slash agentofinfluence. This is an episode in a series of interviews with industry leaders and security gurus, and it's a pleasure to have with me today, Jessica Nemmers. Hi, Jessica.
1: Hi, thank you for having me on the show.
0: It's our pleasure. Jessica is the Chief Security Officer at Elevate. In her role as a security leader, she focuses on building security programs that align with business objectives and compliance drivers. She has over 30 years of experience in the IT industry, including her prior role as a CISO at a global steel manufacturing company. Not to mention that she's also been recognized as a top woman in technology and is a champion for females in the industry. So Jessica, let's hear a little bit about your journey and, and what got you to where you are today.
1: All right, well. Let's see. I am the known in the Dallas-Fort Worth area is the ballerina turned CISO. So actually, uh, technology was my second career. I had a first career as a professional ballerina um, that my career abruptly ended. And through happenstance, I ended up at um, Electronic Data Systems, EDS, back in the day, working on a project. And that's where I got exposed to technology. And I was absolutely fascinated in uh, with it. And then I moved to Perot Systems. And really just being in an IT services company, especially in the 90s, when everything was so new and emerging, it was so great to be able to see advancement happening so quickly. And my love of security happened when I walked into the data center. I just absolutely loved it to this day. I am a huge fan of data centers. Uh, Unfortunately, they're not quite as exciting as they used to be when our servers were as tall as me, Um, but that's really where I got my start. So I've had a lot of different opportunities within the IT industry, Um, somewhat technical, not technical at all, working with other countries as well. I had teams in India and Romania, the United States and Mexico. So that was a lot of fun too just to watch uh, us developing and follow the Sun model. So I've had a kind of a rich experience. And then um, as you mentioned in the introduction, um, in my past job before I came to Elevate, which is a fintech company here in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, I was with the Fortune 500 Global Steel Manufacturing Company. And so I got to know a lot about um, security around critical infrastructure and manufacturing. So I built that program uh, there and then came to Elevate about two years ago during Hando.
0: So when you mentioned the appeal of a data center and the charm that comes along with it, which got you hooked, do you feel that today with more and more cloud adoption, we're missing the opportunity to get people excited because you don't really do things like a data center tour or a visit anymore, Uh, any thoughts there?
1: Yeah, I, I guess somewhat, yes. Um, if Microsoft held their data center tours, I think it would make people say, that's what I, you know, maybe some high school kids or college kids saying, that's what I want to do uh, because they are truly state of the art and they're so big and, and the challenges are still there. But yes, for individual companies as we're walking into our data centers now, it's not as you know exciting. Our footprint has definitely shrunk down to maybe just a couple of racks when it used to be um, a whole section of the data center. But uh, we still have them, but I agree, it's not quite as exciting. And with virtualization and, and again, just the disk size, everything is so much smaller and uh, lower lift than it used to be.
0: No, for sure. So let's talk a little bit about the cybersecurity talent crisis. It seems to be a pretty hot topic with organizations, and it's getting more and more of a hot topic because people are struggling to hire people in the field. Are there any thoughts you have as to why you think we have such a talent shortage? And are there certain things you're doing or you encourage others to do to, to work around this?
1: Yeah, we have really, you're correct, we're really feeling the squeeze of the talent shortage. I believe in in the security space, it's opened up so quickly. And a lot of people maybe are making assumptions that being in cybersecurity requires a highly technical expertise or that you had to be a former developer um, to go into the application side. So the first thing I've done is Try to educate folks on all the different disciplines within cybersecurity, and in the past few years, we've seen more and more opening up toward the privacy side of it, the governance, risk, and compliance, uh, security awareness. So there are so there's a need because we cybersecurity has gone from the um, the firewalls and you know that. The kind of just the cyber part more to information security and now into risk. And so I think that's part of the shortage there is because we used to have a more of a feeder program directly from the infrastructure side and maybe the network security. And then when we opened up into cloud, that is where we have a deficit as well. So I think, you know, still encouraging these programs that have come up, I'm very encouraged that we have uh, cybersecurity programs at universities. We have them at community colleges, and there, there's even you know some of the tech schools, which is great. We need educational opportunities right out of high school. Um, it's interesting, though. I've been sitting at several conferences, and we've been talking about the requirements going into cybersecurity and whether... You do need that four-year degree, or are we wanting to bring candidates in and train them, you know, get some minimum skills there and and some basics, but then come in and train them up. Um, A lot of companies that need a a strong security program want to hire experienced security professionals, and many of us are starting to age out (laughs) into consulting or retirement and so I I find at a lot of places, it's hard to get that talent that in everybody, it's on every job description, once three to five years experience or five to 10, and they don't want to bring in that entry level person and then, you know, because it takes more time. But I believe that's the solution. And I've been talking about that to several groups is getting these uh, students in, whether they have a four-year degree, maybe they're just in a community college uh, and they have their associate's degree. Maybe they did a lot of self-study. A lot of very successful hackers uh, did self-study. They learned their craft on their own. And ISC Square just came out with a new basic cybersecurity certification um, to just show folks entering our uh, our career, what are some of the basics? And if you study and take the exam, that's showing that you do have that basic skill set. Uh, we've got, you know, other security plus is a good one to always ha- ask people to take that one um, just so you can see to which disciplines you really like. But I think these are some of, we're starting to discover that it, give them self-study opportunities, give them a certification to get the basics in and then train them up. Bring them in, junior, train them up. Uh, there's just a lot of talent out there, and I just don't think we've tapped into it yet.
0: would also like your insights on another thing, which is often we find people who want to make a transition in their career path and come from outside of the cybersecurity field into the cybersecurity field. Often I tell them to maybe focus on their area of expertise, but see how cybersecurity is impacting that that particular field. Uh, for example, let's say you were studying to go into medicine. Maybe you don't like that, and you want to focus on cybersecurity. Maybe you want to look at medical device security as a as a way to start, right? Or if you're from a finance background, maybe you start by thinking, looking at how financial services institutions uh, think about cybersecurity. So, what are your thoughts there?
1: Yes. Yeah, so, I'm. I think I'm somewhat of a poster child for the transition again from uh, being a professional ballerina into ultimately cybersecurity, um, but we are seeing a lot of opportunities for folks that are, they've been in the workplace for years, um, not necessarily even in IT, but it is, uh, if you are involved in any kind of technology, there are opportunities to definitely come over into the cybersecurity area. But I've also been talking to folks that are working in risk or governance or audit. Uh, Again, coming into that privacy side, the GRC side, even trainers, Uh, I had a global training organization and so much of my job as a chief security officer is educating others on cyber risk and best practices and things like that. So I do think if people can Uh, really look at their skill set, number one, and their background. And then I agree with you, there is a relationship between pretty much everything now and security, whether it's the securing the data or the system or the application. And, you know, even project managers, I believe that we need more of those, too, with our big security projects. So um, I have a couple of mentees that have gone from uh, one career now into cybersecurity, they're thriving and absolutely love it. So I've I've been really excited to expose again all the disciplines within cybersecurity to those who might be interested.
0: So in that similar vein, you know our industry is very male dominated, just in the nature of what we've done and and who's who's been in the space. What are some things you would advise? Uh, people to encourage and enable more women to actually break in and and make make an impact here.
1: Yeah. So if we can keep shifting left and starting a little earlier. So I still am surprised when I talk to girls in high school, um, what are you thinking about doing? And Cybersecurity is never on their mind. So, um, so we're, I think having, you know, we, we talk a lot about the STEM opportunities for young women. So I think starting to talk about cybersecurity, but again, expose them to all the different disciplines within there. So you don't assume that you have to be highly technical to come into security and really risk. I mean, it, security is a risk discussion um, in boardrooms. It's, it's talked about very often now. Um, It's not just an IT problem. So just the challenge of being even in risk management. Uh, the second is identifying talent within teams. A lot of, uh, in IT organizations, it, it is somewhat male dominated. We're getting better. I'm seeing a lot more diversity in IT, but really identifying your hidden talent and, and targeting women in, in different uh, backgrounds to come into cybersecurity and and give them a chance. Maybe it's a working assignment, maybe it's a stretch assignment. Um, I know a, a few other female CISOs, and I have been working just exposure at conferences. And I have a lot of my male colleagues saying, man, I wish my daughter would go into cyber after listening to you. So I said, hey, talk to him a little bit more about it and, and encourage. So I think um, the head of the cybersecurity infrastructure and security agency is a female. I think that's wonderful. And I think if we can, again, keep exposing uh, these female leaders out there and and drawing in um, other women who might be interested in our craft would help uh, diversify cybersecurity a little bit more.
0: So using the term shift left to kind of get earlier in the, And this is the human life cycle that we're talking about, not the software life cycle, but (laughs) shifting left. I'm, I'm curious to get your perspective, too. Do you think culturally and just still where we are and what we see as most common patterns, do you think... You know younger girls versus boys do you think boys are given more freedom to take risks and go play sports that are a little bit more risky or go learn by their from their mistakes more whereas girls are kind of taught to be more proper and you know collected and don't go out and run around you know or break a leg or anything like that i wonder if if that's sort of a cultural a difference in upbringing even before high school has an impact on uh women you know wanting to get into a field where all you deal with is risk.
1: Yeah, I that's an interesting question. I don't know if I've actually considered it. I do know there's a lot of psychology pointing to the fact that you know how we're raising our boys versus our girls I know, uh, we raise our girls to be polite. So not being disruptive. Uh, I know being a disruptor in the business world is often, um, taken differently as a woman than with a man. But I can, yes, I can kind of see the, uh, the encouraging men to be or young boys to be bold and to be big and encouraging our girls to be careful and quiet and thoughtful and proper. And yeah, so that's that's a really interesting thought. I think that probably has a lot to do with it.
0: I'm just thinking the root of the problem may be way earlier than even high school. So uh, just, just a thought. Um, well, talking about um, starting as a security leader in an organization, um, typically there, you know, you walk into a lot of unknowns and you have to kind of determine where, how to move forward. Do you have any advice for, for people uh, who are maybe starting in a new security leadership role on how to prioritize and set a strong foundation for their security program?
1: Absolutely, yes. And I, I still feel that those feelings of when I started my first security program as well. Uh, it takes a lot of patience and listening. Uh, I think really understanding what's top of mind for your leadership and what's driving why you're there. If it's a checkbox on an audit, so they brought in somebody to be the security leader, uh, that's going to be a little bit different than hey, we've already been breached and now we need someone to put um, some measures in place to get us back to uh, resiliency or just get back and get us back into business and then improve from there. Uh, I believe we underestimate the importance of the basics. And just cyber hygiene. Right now with the situation with the Russian invasion in Ukraine, we're seeing uh, threat actors exploiting these vulnerabilities that have been out there for now six months, a year, maybe even longer. Uh, and, and so a lot of companies are looking at these expensive, fancy bells and whistles and this EDR and, you know, these endpoint they all play a very important part. But I think patching isn't one of those things that come to mind as something that can build a strong security program. But right now, for those organizations who are not up on their patching and haven't practiced vulnerability management, all of those other very expensive solutions aren't gonna work. (laughs) So, and, and it's really important. So I think starting layer by layer and not getting too far ahead of yourself as a new security leader too, uh, you don't want to purchase solutions that you don't have people to implement or use, because then they're just going to be shelfware, and it's ultimately not going to strengthen your security posture where you're working.
0: Well, talking about the current situation in Russia and and Ukraine, there is a lot of focus recently around critical infrastructure as being. Something that may get attacked not only in Russia and in Ukraine, but also around the world, potentially in the United States or other NATO uh, members, uh, etc. Mm-hmm. You know, having been someone who has helped protect uh, critical systems as part of your experience, would love to hear your thoughts on uh, how you think secure leader security leaders can be more proactive um, right now, given the current tensions around the world, and. Also, are there things beyond critical infrastructure that we should also be focusing on and thinking about that maybe people aren't thinking of today?
1: Okay, I'll take your first one first. So critical infrastructure, CISA, again, the Cybersecurity Infrastructure and Security Agency, which is part of the Department of Homeland Security and the government, has brought together a lot of really valuable information in their Shields Up campaign. So we as security leaders, whether we work in critical infrastructure or not, I think we should continue to evangelize that it's there. For the first time in history, our government has gathered intel, they've gathered free uh, tools and solutions that companies can use to help strengthen their security posture. And I will always say, if you are in a position where you don't have funds for a, a whole cybersecurity team, Or we talked about the talent shortage if you're having trouble getting them partner with those managed service providers now now is definitely the time uh critical infrastructure has been at risk for absolute years i wrote an article about it um after colonial pipeline i said gosh everybody's saying this is a wake-up call i've been saying the phone has been ringing for years So that has been a target of many threat actors, whether, you know, Chinese, Russian, you know, the usual adversaries or even those coming out of Eastern Europe. Uh, it's, it's very important to take a focused security strategy with critical infrastructure. Um, operational technology, OT networks, uh, were not designed to withstand cyber attacks. And if companies are not Segmenting those and protecting those separately from the same network that's reaching the internet, and people are opening emails and social engineering is happening. It could be devastating for a company, and and so that's probably the the biggest uh, push right now is just educating critical infrastructure companies what the threats are and what they can do to just again back to the basics to protect them but also to protect us as citizens so we're not feeling the the effects of that um so in what else do we need to be looking for uh we know from history recent history that uh threat actors especially on the russian side use misinformation disinformation campaigns um and they create confusion uh, a lot of them are through fake websites or phishing emails, social engineering. I just got off a, a call today with a, a very high level security leader talking about email security. Uh, it still works. And we said, why in 2022 are we still talking about phishing attacks and social engineering? Because they work. We're, we're still human and we're still busy and we're still wanting to be helpful and they are getting better with their grammar. They're getting better with their techniques, more realistic emails. So I encourage everyone, especially during this heightened awareness with what's happening, um, really around the world is just to be extra, extra careful with your, with your emails, uh, keeping your home computer and your work computer updated, patch, you know, just again, some of these basic and multi-factor authentication. I, I know a lot of security leaders will say, "Yeah, but we just saw an advisory this week that um, threat actors are now bypassing MFA." But don't make it any easier for them. Make them work hard at it. So I think you know having multi-factor in front of everything you can is a really important security measure.
0: Yeah, multi-factor I think needs to really be the bare minimum when it yes. comes to authentication and and sadly you know speaking of the human element when there's a crisis people tend to let their guards down because they are maybe in a in a situation where they feel nervous worried desperate for information and knowledge and they they've become more vulnerable to a lot of these social engineering attacks phishing voice phishing sms phishing attacks and so on
1: absolutely and everybody wants to give to the organizations and the agencies and mm-hmm. the threat actors are posing as them which right. is a just, lot of
0: scams around yeah. fundraising is, is it's very unfortunate but it's uh it's there and it's real
1: yeah
0: so so jessica if i built a time ta- time machine for you and and sent you back to uh go speak to yourself Uh, on your first job as a Chief Information Security Officer or Chief Security Officer uh, in your first year, what advice would you go and, and give yourself?
1: I would say know who your partners need to be and build the relationship before you start with your asks. It's the challenge, and I was just talking to one of our, our newer team members this week. The challenge of being in security is that we are not hands on keyboard. We don't, we're not the doers. We're the influencers. We're the advisors. If you haven't built a good, strong relationship with the doers who are already busy doing so many other things other than security controls, it will make the job a lot harder and could create an adversarial relationship. So um, you know, your developers for application security, uh, your audit team, internal and external, and your infrastructure team for you know, patching and setting, even setting up servers for your own tools and solutions, things like that, uh, you rely on them. So I would say start with, start slow, start with relationship building. I think we know that we need all these security controls in immediately. But if you're moving ahead of yourself too quickly, it'll just make it harder to reach success for, on both sides.
0: So maybe my perception is incorrect in this space, but having been in cybersecurity, I feel like everyone I speak to these days, they also understand the need and the importance of, of cybersecurity in, in today's high-tech, uh, you know, fast-paced world why do you think there's still so much friction then between the security teams and the other stakeholders, such as developers, operations folks, et cetera? I mean, if you think everyone understands the importance of security, wouldn't you think by now the friction would have gone down?
1: I would. I also realize the power of a budget. So if you only have so much budget and so many people, I think the friction and the stress really comes out of, you're asking me to do multiple things. So we're moving very quickly. Our developers are moving quickly to produce the code, to create the apps and get to market. We're also asking them to stop and go back and make changes because there's vulnerabilities or you did not code securely and i think that's that's where it, it becomes difficult because i think everybody's feeling the stress right now especially in the great resignation of losing people and now we're even more lean than we were so we have so much to do moving forward uh that stopping and implementing these security controls that it does take time and i think that's really i i think they know in principle how important it is but for many companies, and again, just looking at critical infrastructure and how many companies actually have a security program, the priority has not been on security. It's been on getting the product to market. So it's, I think that's where the friction comes in.
0: Yeah, no, it, it reminds me of a piece of advice um, one of my mentors gave me a long time ago when um, trying to help organizations with their challenges He said often you need to take a step back and not just think of things through the security lens, but also think about how does the business make money, because Mm -hmm. that's how you will determine if you're enabling the business to be more successful. That'll allow you to, to build better programs or advise them better on on what they need to do. So it just reminded me of that uh, that particular piece of
1: advice. That's a very that's very important advice, especially as if we are not heeding that, then the security team is starts to be known as the office of no. So. And and it's a lot easier to lock down a company and not let them do anything because then you're super secure. So yeah, that's <laughs> often
0: yeah. not realistic, but yes, uh, not can at all <laughs> yeah. for sure. Well, um, Jessica, we like to talk to our guests about things outside of cybersecurity, and um, so we want to talk to you a little bit about you know parenting. It's been a, it's been a couple of years. It's been pretty tough with the pandemic and uncertainty around things being open and closed, and even uncertainty around COVID and and how it impacts people. So for any parents listening in, what type of advice would you have for people who are trying to ba- balance their career and, and parenting?
1: Work will always be there. <laughs> the days are long and the years are short for sure. I have a senior that's about to graduate high school. Um, but yeah, I think taking advantage of the new technology and some of the things that might not have changed since COVID. So maybe the, the grocery deliveries, the meal deliveries, things that we did out of protecting us from the crowds and, and keeping that going. I think that really helps a lot of parents when you're trying to, you know, work and get kids to practices and and activities in school and here and there uh i know when my kids were little i would have really really loved uh grocery pickup grocery delivery uh being able to do some of these planning like uh, you know the meal kits things like that so i think just taking advantage of apps taking advantage of um help too a lot of us get into that mode Where we don't, we feel like we're inconveniencing others by asking them for help, but we can't do this alone. It, when, when they say it takes a village, it really does. So I think that might help alleviate a little bit of the stress, but it is, there's really not a lot of balance. I know, especially in cybersecurity. So.
0: Well, I mean, come to think of it, you know, because of the pandemic, I feel like we've made. Certain technological advances that would have taken much longer for us to get to with the transitioning from, you know, that grocery delivery or even just generic services that you can get online for pickup and, 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 um, you know, couriers and, um, you know, meal kits or even, I think, people willing to be open to having, let's say, a virtual doctor's visit, because often you don't need to be there in person for many, many basic things. But, you know, even in the in the healthcare space, right, the hospitals and doctors adopted telemedicine a lot faster than they probably would have in a normal scenario. So there are benefits. And, and that's true. I, I did not think of it that way until you mentioned it. I can see how a lot of these things that came out of COVID um I think allow us to just spend more time with with our families and and doing things that we enjoy so speaking of things we enjoy you have a very unique hobby um which is collecting bourbon
1: um
0: as much as I love bourbon I I don't have a collection or anything like that but I do consume it but I know I have friends who are who are very much into bourbon and collecting would love to understand from you what it is about bourbon that really got you interested in, in, in collecting and what are maybe some of your most prized possessions?
1: Okay. <laughs> and I have to say my collection does not, it pales by comparison to some of my colleagues out there. Uh, but actually, uh, so being in security and at the time being, we're getting a little bit better, I think, according to ISE Squared, uh, of all the CISSP's in the world, I think 24% were about at 24% are female. When I certified, it was 11%. So we have grown. But being in primarily uh, male areas in security, and we'd be at these conferences, uh, that was what everybody was talking about. And I, being in a man's world, I've often adopted some of their interests to just understand what they're talking about or be able to participate in the conversation. So this was definitely one of those, um, if you can't beat them, join them. And so I just started exploring what they, what it is and trying to learn about the fact that all whiskey is whiskey, but not all bourbon. No, wait, all bourbon is whiskey, but not all whiskey is bourbon. There we go. That was a strange concept for me. But um, as you will find with bourbon enthusiasts, we can sit around and talk about it for ever. And so uh, I went and started trying different bourbons and actually found that I loved them. And there's so many different tastes. Uh, it's a very social drink. It's a drink that you drink very slowly. So I, and, and again, it's something that we all have in common. So not only, you know, are we doing similar jobs as CISOs, and it's a very stressful job, uh, to be able to sit back and relax and just talk about something that we all enjoy, uh, no matter what our background is, what part of the country we live in, you know, uh, that's really been a good unification, uh, topic. It used to be golf, but they refer to bourbon as liquid golf now. So, um, and people often ask me, um, what my favorites are. And I always say that's like asking me, what my favorite child is um i think i there's so many of them and i really do uh, like different flavors but um kentucky bourbons are a, i'm a big fan of them and i guess some of my most prized possessions are the rare ones that you can't often find um that became more rare over the last few years so oh you know some of the wellers um, and Blantons and things like that that you don't find often and they're, it's like a little treasure hunt. So those are probably my most prized possessions.
0: So when it comes to collecting bourbon, are there certain things that you consider before you decide whether you're going to actually buy something and add it to your collection or something you're going to buy just to consume?
1: I think everything that I collect, I like. So I would not buy a bottle just to have bragging rights. Um, so, and there are a couple of bottles I'm saving, but pretty much they are to enjoy. That's why I probably don't have as high end as some of my colleagues out there that have, you know, the Pappy Van Winkles and things like that, that are much more expensive and even harder to find. So, yeah, I I like to stick with things and not everything has to be expensive either. So I I like to buy things that I like and... There are a few bourbons that I don't like. It's just a strange aftertaste, and and that's also what's interesting. It's like drinking wine. Some people like cheaper wine. Some people only drink expensive wine. It's I love to see everyone's personal taste, and and then you know, and enthusiasts always love. Oh, you've got to try this, and you've got to try that. But it's a great way to expand our palate.
0: Well, well, Jessica, thank you for being being on a, on the podcast. Uh, I I hope we get to meet in person soon at one of these events so I can introduce you to some of my other friends who are also uh, bourbon enthusiasts, and I think you'll, uh, you'll have some great conversations with them. But thank you for your time. We really appreciate it.
1: Thank you so much. I appreciate your time, and thanks for having me on the show.
0: This has been an Agent of Influence podcast with Nabil Hanan. Portions of this interview can be found in print on the NetSpy Executive blog. And please subscribe for future episodes of Agent of Influence at www.netspy.com slash agent of
1: influence.